0: Let's go over now and say hello to Dr. Daniel Ellsberg.
1: Hello. I'm sorry for the delay.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. I've already given a rather um, in-depth, in my last hour, uh, introduction to you, but I'd like to, to, for those who may not be all that familiar with you, especially a younger generation, I'd like to just to take a moment and focus on a little bit of your background. Is that all right? Fine. Okay. Well, first... Dr. Ellsberg is a former military analyst for the Rand Corporation, and who released the highly controversial political documents that led to the unveiling of secrets, motivations, and cover-ups behind the Vietnam War. That was called the Pentagon Papers, and it ultimately contributed to the Watergate and the removal of President Nixon. And since then, he has been one of the nation's most outspoken anti-war activists speaking out against our invasion strategy in Afghanistan and American militarism in the Middle East and earlier supporting the impeachment of George Bush. And uh, this year, um, uh, there's a documentary about him in the Pentagon Papers called The Most Dangerous Man in America, and it was nominated for an Oscar and he has also received the prestigious Gandhi Peace Award and the Alternative Nobel Right Livelihood Award. And he comes with an interesting background. Uh, He graduated from Harvard at the top of his class. Um, He also uh, was number one, I believe, out of 1,100 people in uh, the academy that he went uh, to. And he also, he became an anti-war activist after attending some anti-war events while re- still in his position at the RAND Corporation, and he experienced an epiphany attending a War Resisters League conference at Haverford College back in August 1969, and he listened to a speech given by a draft resistor named Randy uh, Randy uh, Keffer, Kefler, Kefler, Keeler, uh, who who said that he was very excited that he would soon be able to join his friends in prison. And, uh, and he said this very calmly, and, uh, and that really surprised my guest. And it, it had a way of galvanizing his attention to the issues. That's just a little bit of the overview. Now, I'd like for you to give us a real education, if you would, please. We need a Pentagon Papers today. Uh, We need someone to tell us the truth about why we really are in Afghanistan and Iraq and likely to have a war with supporting Israel and having a war with Iran. And we've been told the following, that if we don't fight them over there, then they're going to come to America. We are told that uh, all we need is another major surge and we can do what we uh, did in Iraq in Afghanistan, and we're told that Israel is the most important ally we have in the Middle East. And Israel's security is essential because it stabilizes uh, the peace in the Middle East for us. Could you please go through each of these and give us a your opinion and insights? And take your time. We have no commercial interruptions.
1: Really? Well. As I hear you ask that question, I think I'm not a pundit here who has to have wise opinions on everything of the day. You, you, these are very um, penetrating questions, all right. And I don't have a background on all of them. I, I do my best to try to understand the situation. Taking taking your last one first, for example, it's very clear that a major aspect of attachment to uh, really our our unquestioning support of the policies of Likud and the the current government and recent in Israel have reflected primarily the fact that uh, there's a very strong Israeli lobby in this country and that uh, it's very effective in threatening congressmen or or promising congressmen that they'll do well if they... uh, in even getting committee appointments and in their funding for com- campaigns, if they do toe the line on that and that they're in real danger of losing their jobs. If they don't, it's not the only effective lobby. It's like the National Rifle Association or uh, the Big Pharma and various others, but it's a very effective lobby, and there is no major lobby uh, on the other side. The the principle there is of uh, the people who advocate that course is that what's good for Israel is good for the United States. That there's a total alignment between our interests there. These two states, if they are two states, I think the people, the people uh, towing that often lose sight of the fact that Israel is not the 51st state. In any case, uh, and that and we are we are not one, but. Uh, I think, in fact, since that policy seems to me to be, from my distant view here and not expert view, uh, hard for me to believe that it's a good policy for Israel in the long run. But I certainly feel that it's not a good policy for the United States to be isolated along with it, moving us toward isolation uh, in the Middle East with Israel as our only friend and vice versa. Uh, in other words, Israel's policy is... is is uh, of greater Israel there, is almost uh, guaranteed to cause it to be hated basically throughout the Middle East, which I think was not at all necessary in an earlier period, and now it's a question of whether we and they can escape from that. Um, the, so I, I would much prefer to see a uh, clear-cut division uh, uh, recognition that our interests are not the same there, and that Israel is absolutely out of line uh, in terms of international law and the international consensus here in its uh, policies toward the West Bank and the occupied territories, as they're correctly called by most of the world, except for the United States. Uh, that is indeed one of our, it's very hard to imagine our uh, establishing greater security for us and others in the Middle East while we espouse that policy. Now in Afghanistan, where you were, um, you described my, my history um, in working on the Pentagon Papers, you didn't mention actually that I had been an official of the State Department in Vietnam for two years. And my job there, and before that, in the Defense Department, in other words, my, my work was not, in this respect, was not primarily at the Rand Corporation, but in the government. and. Uh, Two things in the in the Pentagon. I was working on the ill-fated escalation of the war in Vietnam, uh, a subject which uh, a project which at the time I thought extremely unpromising and uh, not good policy, and yet I followed with all my colleagues the principle that what the president wanted was. Uh, The right thing to do without question and i didn't pay much attention to the oath i'd actually taken which was not to the president but to support and defend the constitution which my president then lyndon johnson was violating very egregiously and deceiving congress into what amounted to a declaration of war based on quite false premises about uh, what had just happened to us in the tonkin gulf supposedly and uh and what his aims were that he sought no wider war when, in fact, we in the Pentagon were secretly planning nothing other than a wider war at that time. Well, I went along with that because I thought that's where my loyalty properly lay, and that was misguided. Now I think, by the way, that the, uh, there was an exact parallel to that in the deception of Congress as to aims and um, uh, needs and vital interests of the United States in 2002 in 2003 under George W. Bush, where he was secretly uh, planning an invasion of Iraq, which in terms of international law and the U.N. charter was as egregious uh, a violation of international law as clear-cut a case of American aggression, a crime against the peace, as any previous aggression, whether it was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, or uh, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, or going back to the, to the German uh, invasions of Poland and uh, other countries in, in the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, very very blatant example of that, which got very little attention here. We're so used to being on top of the heap here and being the, uh, the number one empire since the collapse of the Soviet Union that uh, we don't even think in terms of constraints of international law at all. We're above all that. Then moving to Afghanistan, uh, the we had indeed in that case uh, after 9/11 uh, more of a case of uh, justified military action against Al Qaeda at that point. Going back now almost 10 years uh, to a period when Al Qaeda was based in Afghanistan, where it isn't anymore. It's now essentially in Pakistan, our nominal ally, but and to. Uh, To put in 100,000 troops uh, to combat the threat of what apparently are about 100 members of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is hardly a wise allocation of U.S. efforts, let's say in a world where where terrorism is a real problem and where we're compounding that problem by uh, occupying another Muslim country and allying ourselves, as I said earlier, with a detested and uh, illegal Israeli policy in uh, greater Israel and Palestine. So, uh, however, the experience that I had in Vietnam is directly relevant, and that's what the Pentagon Papers illustrated pretty much, uh, to what's happening in Afghanistan. There is a war that I find uh, so close to my experience uh, almost 40 years ago now that I think of it as Vietnamistan. Uh, it's in Occupation of a country that is organized and has a has a millennial history of repelling foreign invaders. In fact, it's uh, it's almost an anarchic society in terms of uh, small being organized really in small villages in valleys, with great distrust of central authority and great distrust even of uh, distant valleys in their own in their own region. And if it's organized for one thing, it's for expelling foreign invaders, which it's done very effectively since Alexander and Genghis Khan and the British Empire. And we're ignoring all that history, including the more recent one, of their finally expelling the Soviets uh, after 10 years of, of feudal conflict there, in which the Soviets lost some thirteen to 15,000 men before they left, and the Afghans lost a million and, uh, before, before the Soviets left. And that was a war which we fueled in order to bleed the Soviets, and not paying too much attention that we process of that, where we were arming uh, Islamic fundamentalists to resist the Soviets, and to uh, and to uh, maintain their system of uh, oppression of women and their production of of opium, which the Soviets had both opposed. Uh, we were playing on those deep sympathies there to oppose the Soviets, and in the course of that, as I say, they lost a million men, and that was uh, a million people, not men, mostly women and children. The point was that the Soviets had no future there, as they could have seen from Alexander and Genghis Khan and so forth, and the British more recently. We're ignoring that Soviet history, recent experience, just as we ignored the defeat of the French in Vietnam. Uh, paid no attention to it. Uh, We had nothing to learn from them. We were the Americans. So what did we have to learn from the fact that the French, who had needed our help in two world wars, uh, had failed? That said nothing about the likelihood that we would fail. And apparently uh, we feel the same thing about the Soviets. Uh, Look, their empire collapsed. Uh, Why should we learn anything from their experience there? So we're going ahead to reproduce it, basically. And I think the effect of that will be, again, very tragic for the Afghans and of no promise whatever of any kind of success for the United States. Uh, I noticed that today in the news, as I expected as of yesterday, that Petraeus, General Petraeus coming in with his emphasis on counterinsurgency, which is what I studied and practiced in Vietnam long ago, and have some real experience basis on which to, uh, anal- uh, analyze it and interpret it. And on that basis, I'm saying that Petraeus' policy has no prospect whatever of any success in Afghanistan. And if he doesn't know that, he has simply deluded himself as the author of this policy. But um, uh, I did expect that with his taking direct charge of that, I was sure that he had, as of yesterday, I expected that he had gotten a promise from uh, President Obama that no real attention would be paid to this nominal date of beginning to depart 18 months from now uh, or 18 months from last December. And um, uh, yes, indeed, in the word today, Obama is backing away from that. Uh, Vice President Biden said apparently only a few weeks ago, repeated, yes, we'll be taking out a whole lot of troops and uh, at that time. And uh, Gates and others have rejected that prediction right now. Well, I think uh, Gates is right about that. We won't be taking them out. And I haven't expected that right from the beginning. If Obama, for whatever political reasons, could not say no to General McChrystal last December when he asked for thirty to 80,000 troops for this hopeless war, I didn't and don't expect that he'll be able to say no to Petraeus now or anybody else in future decades. And then, pretty much applies to his successors. I think the best bet is that we will be fighting and killing and dying in Afghanistan uh, longer than I'm alive. And that that, that, I'm old But uh, as long as um, our children are alive, decades and decades, can't put an end to it. Uh, Not unless the American people eventually did what they did in Vietnam, which was to press Congress to remove the funds from that war, which finally did happen in 1973, and the war ended a year or so. Well, if the funds didn't go entirely for combat, combat we continued support to, the, to our puppet regime there for a couple more years. But uh, the funds for combat operations were removed, and the war did end. So uh, that's the that way to get, the Afghan war will end someday, if, if and when it ever does. Uh, we, and above all the Afghans, are in for a very long war that will serve no one's purposes except the people who are um, producing and selling arms for that war.
0: I w- thank you. I appreciate this overview. I would like now if you could go into some specifics in the following areas. First, Petraeus has been given credit for the surge working in Iraq. However, when you look carefully at what actually happened in Iraq, he put over 100,000 Sunnis with arms on pay and their leaders, tribal leaders on pay. uh, And it was over $450 uh, a month for each one, plus arms, if they wouldn't fight us. So, in effect, we, we funded and armed the people who had been the insurgent. Then we turned around and we made a deal with Muktasadar. He was going to spend seven years in Iran studying to become a full mullah, as his father was. His father at one time was the, one of the two leading clerics, religious clerics, in Iran and or Iraq until he was killed by Saddam Hussein, but it takes seven years, and he had to go to qualm the religious capital of Iraq, to do that. He's now five years into that. When he Mukdisholder said, "Put down your arms," to his his men went to to ground, meaning that over a hundred and fifty thousand militia. Disengaged in their conflict until such time that he would come back from Iran as the new spiritual leader, and therefore galvanize an entire Iraqi population, uh, at least the Shia, uh, into supporting a theocracy and strict uh, Sharia laws, and uh, and and he would have the authority of the um, Islamic. Uh, scholars, because he would have done his homework. And Betrayus is taking credit for we just had a lot of troops there without these two considerations the largest militia that was causing the most death and destruction, the largest insurgency group, which we paid off. And he and the world and the media have made it seem like, oh, he want, he did that surge, how great it is. And I'm seeing Iraq that is rife with crime and corruption at every level and is going to be a mess. At, uh, when all this starts to coalesce again in the next couple of years, I'd like your thoughts on that. And then you said that your specialization was in uh, this counterintelligence. Could you give us an idea of oh, what please. that counterintelligence was like in Vietnam? The kind of Nguyen uh, Cao Chi and the corruption and uh, of the government there, and maybe as a, as a comparison with the, uh, the corruption we're now seeing with Maliki, And also... What does it mean? For the average person, they don't know what any of these terms mean. What does it mean, counterintelligence? What are you actually doing there that can either help your cause or hurt your cause? And I don't see there's a great difference between Vietnam and, uh, and, and, and Afghanistan as far as people are people, poor people are poor people, and you have a negative effect, you have a positive effect. Could you take us through those two areas, please? <laughs>
1: okay well i think you've been made a slip of the tongue there you were saying counterintelligence i think the word you meant was counterinsurgency I'm, which is the I mean. yes, uh sorry yes. where petraeus has written or signed a manual actually a few years ago on um, counterinsurgency and the idea there is uh, you're you're confronting something an insurgency in supposedly a rebellion against a recognized or legitimate authoritative government, and some people are rising in armed rebellion against it. That's uh, pretty misleading in both in in most cases, because where it's usually applied is in an imperial context. We're taking the the, uh, the notions almost entirely from French imperial practices in Morocco, Algeria, and Indochina. And elsewhere, and their theories, which in the end didn't didn't work for them, they're, they're not any of those places, and they were essentially defeated uh, from their their imperial rule in most of those, but their theories as to how to stay on uh, made the pretense that the government they were paying and maintaining and supporting, the puppets they'd put in power, represented an authoritative, legitimate government, and that there was a rebellion against them. Whereas in fact, uh, the authority and re- legitimacy was being was hardly recognized at all by uh, most of the people in the country. That was especially true in Indochina, and uh, uh, in fact, the the administrative apparatus which we called terrorist, on the whole, let's say, of the NLF, or now it seems of the Taliban in Afghanistan, is regarded as more indigenous, more of a uh, a proper patriotic national framework, whether or not it was very admirable in all respects, but in all respects, but it's a more homegrown, uh, genuine uh, government apparatus than the one we were paying for, or that the foreigners are paying for. The very fact that foreigners are providing the money and most of the direction for this obviously stamps it as an occupying imperial Project and the people of that country do not fail to notice that the people back here don't. Uh, we're we're just friends, brothers, helpers. Uh, how can anyone um, object to our presence and bases and gunships and uh, firepower in their country? Uh, uh, we're we're so we're so nice. We're so friendly. Uh, and to see ourselves as invaders, as occupiers, is something very hard for Americans to do or, or most imperial powers. Uh, you know, the, the French were bringing wonderful uh, civilization. <laughs> they, call, they call it a civilizing mission. And the British in their empire were bringing wonderful administration. And how could anyone object to that by the mere fact that they were foreigners and spoke a different language and had a different ethnic background? And uh, uh, what did that have to do with anything? When you say that you see a, a great analogy even to the um, corruption in uh, in Afghanistan and Vietnam, actually the parallel is is very dramatic. Uh, under no uh, Nodin Zyem, the, the dictator that we installed basically in 1954 um, and five and six, and on until we had him killed in 63 because he'd gotten out of line. So for those nine years, essentially, uh, the country was, to a large extent, run by his brother, uh, and uh, Nodin knew who was, on the one hand, in charge of the dope trade. Uh, in that case, it was uh, oh, it's the same, actually, <laughs> opium, heroin. Uh, I was thinking of a difference here, possibly when we when we backed the Contras. Uh, the coin of our support there was uh, cocaine. Actually, different area, but in uh, in. Afghanistan and in um, in Vietnam, it was uh, the makings for heroin. It was basically opium from v- various other parts. It wasn't grown in in Vietnam in that in that case, but it was a through place for it. And also, No Dinh Du was the head of the secret police there, uh, a, a group that was called by in our intelligence circles by Edward Lansdale there, who had been in on the beginning, as essentially a fascist organization. Uh, that, that ran the country. And the comparison there with uh, Karzai, who, like Zim, is said to be not corrupt himself. It's just that he has a corrupt brother. <laughs> As if uh, the family ties, you know, did not, uh, all, or the, the money did not all go into the same family pot there. And um, so in this case, we have Hamid uh, Wali Karzai, who's the half-brother in Kandahar and who runs um, a secret you know, or police organization, essentially, uh, is known as a warlord, which means an armed drug dealer uh, with a drug-dealing militia that controls the area, and he's, he's based, his money is based on drugs. So the comparison there is uh, is awfully close. I don't think we have a, a, com- a counterpart to Madame Nhu, Nhu's wife, who was known as the Dragon Lady in in Vietnam. This seems to be, this is more of a, a misogynistic culture, patriarchal, so there's no woman uh, in the forefront. That's about, the, that's the difference. Um, so the chance, in other words, that this Hamid Wali Karzai where, in Kandahar, where the offensive scheduled for now, has been postponed since... Our generals noticed, and I'll give them credit for this. Noticed that almost nobody there in the area, no people, wanted us to have an offensive. They did not want that war in their in their territory. And somehow, uh, almost to my surprise, here they that was seen as a reason for not conducting it by us. And we'll see what success they have in the future. But in any case, we'll be propping up the apparatus of Hamid Wali Karzai, uh, which doesn't have much chance for long term. Legitimacy. Now, I agree with you that in Iraq—well, uh, let me let me put it a little, a little differently uh, than you did. Uh, you said that it wasn't counterinsurgency that won, and I agree with you there, in the surge. It wasn't the presence of more troops uh, closer to the people, which was the touted— uh, strategy of uh, Petraeus's surge there but it was a change in what amounted to diplomacy and who our allies were and who was on the payroll and who we made deals with now i here's where i, I differ from a little bit i'll give them credit uh, for doing that uh, that did produce at least a temporary uh, truce in effect uh, which is more than a purely military account would have done. As I understand it, the deal, the supposed, supposed great so-called great, pardon me, great Awakening, which involved the Sunni uh, militia there, the Sunni uh, armed people, in actually fighting the foreign al-Qaeda event, uh, elements, the individuals who'd come there from abroad to take part in the insurgency. They fought them and, in effect, joined... The government side there. But as you say, a key aspect of that was are paying them. And uh, that's—I I, I don't want to criticize that too much. That's fine. If you can stop the shooting and the killing by paying some people, uh, uh, that's a, a more promising route. Now, is it a, a promising long-run route? As you said, you've armed a lot of Sunni there uh, for a later fight or conflict with the dominant—or numerically dominant—Shia who pretty much run the country now, and uh, we're in closer league with Iran, the Shiites in Iran. And so the long-run prospect isn't isn't wonderful, and to protect, uh, that'll be an excuse, I think, or a re- demand for U.S. troops to remain there longer. But in the short run, uh, it has the following aspect, which almost nobody seems to have noted. When we came in, uh, Paul Bremer and others are, are widely criticized, almost universally criticized, for having taken the, the Ba'athist-led army, the sunni led army, off the payroll and just uh, making them adrift, uh, unemployed, basically, in a, in a country with great unemployment, and that that was a major aspect of the so-called insurgency, of the fighting against us. And it was always regarded as a mistake, that they had been deprived of their income. Well, what... What uh, Petraeus did, and I say I'll give him uh, some credit for this, was to reverse that and put them back on the payroll and reverse that mistake. So potentially that had some some elements of the kind of dealing and diplomacy that has greater promise than a purely military strategy. But in the longer run, uh, I don't think the prospects for real peace in Iraq are are very good, and as I say, I think that'll be taken as an excuse or reason for us to remain there in considerable force. I think that a major aspect of the and Petraeus strategy in Afghanistan was to take troops that were coming out of Iraq and uh, give them perhaps a, a brief home leave to uh, visit their families, and then take them to Iraq, to Afghanistan. And I think that still is the strategy, but. It's going to be delayed because uh, the, the strife that continues in Iraq between the Sunni and the Shia. And remember, we're, we're arming both sides there, is what it comes down to, um, is apparently slowing down our removals from Iraq. So whereas I was predicting that they would, starting with about 130,000 troops there last year, that they would take about 100,000 out and put them in, um, in Af- Iraq, Afghanistan, and leave thirty to forty thousand there indefinitely, and by that I mean really indefinitely, uh, generations. Uh, bases, U.S. bases in F- Iraq that are intended never to leave those oil fields, and uh, that contiguity to uh, to Israel. Well, I still believe that, but I don't think we'll get down to thirty thousand as fast as uh, they expected even months ago. Uh, apparently we're gonna leave a lot more than that in Iraq. So the war is not over there. The notion that, in, in any case, getting back to your earlier point, which I agree with, um, it's mistaken if anybody really believes that Petraeus can do uh, what, uh, what he did in, in Iraq, what he did in, uh, I'm sorry, in Afghanistan, what he did in Iraq. Uh, if there is any effect of that, and there might be, I I would hope that there would be, it would be because he is open to deals, as is Karzai. There's almost nothing good to say about Karzai, except, in my opinion, that he does talk about dealing with the Taliban, which is uh, good for our uh, interests of really lowering our foothold there, lowering our presence, ultimately getting out. Uh, I think that uh, the idea that you can't deal with the Taliban until we've established a position of strength there, until we've stopped their momentum, supposedly, and bloodied them. These are phrases you hear. I think that's totally illusory. That isn't going to happen. Uh, We're not going to establish a position of strength. We're going to bloody them and a lot of other people. But that is not going to improve our bargaining position. So I'd rather see that dealing go on now. And it's just possible that Petraeus will be open to that. That would be the one ray of of light from his experience, uh, in Iraq mm-hmm. that I could imagine. But, uh, in terms of a counterinsurgency strategy of just our troops going in and winning hearts and minds despite the fact that they are of a different, uh, color, language, religion, background, everything else, that they are foreign. <laughs> if I can emphasize that rather obvious point which, which seems to miss, uh, miss the minds of most of the people in Washington that we are foreigners in Afghanistan and that our ability to win hearts and minds especially by um, the kinds of things we've seen on those videos especially by heavy firepower uh, that involves a lot of civilian deaths that's just an illusion I do notice by the way again in today's news that um, Petraeus is backing away from the crystals emphasis on Uh, avoiding civilian deaths, which has been unpopular with our soldiers there. Soldiers feel they're prevented from calling in airstrikes because, uh, on, on, where they haven't clearly identified on buildings and other structures where they haven't identified, uh, that there were no civilians and they feel that's, uh, endangering their lives if you can't do that. But apparently they're going to get what they want, a greater use of firepower and again, didn't seem to get a lot of attention with all McChrystal's talk about uh, avoiding civilian casualties. Civilian casualties in Afghanistan, by our own official statistics, are greater this year than in any previous year. They're rising. And that shouldn't be too surprising. Even if there is greater care on any particular airstrike or any particular engagement to avoid civilian casualties, the fact that we're Obama has tripled the number of troops there, and it means it's going to greatly enlarge the number of engagements and the number of airstrikes. So even if there's less on each one, the overall impact of civilians is going to be greater, and that is what's happening. And now they're even relaxing the, uh, the restrictions on, uh, on the individual airstrikes. So McChrystal wasn't wrong about that point. He kept saying uh, in his rhetoric, and these rules, apparently, that uh, to kill civilians was hurting our effort, that it created recruits for the other side. And ultimately, by the way, that is reflected in uh, danger to us at home here. And that is a contrast there from Vietnam, killing civilians in— and uh, killing anybody, really, uh, resist people who are resisting, not just civilians, but people who are armed resisting our presence there as foreigners there, killing them, does create more recruits for their side, it strengthens them, and ultimately, uh, given this new tactic of uh, suicide bombings in the home of the imperial power, it does endanger us here more. The, the possibility that Afghans and Taliban will ultimately be a threat to the United States, which has not been true up till now. The Taliban is not al-Qaeda, but it could become could become that after another 10 years or so of being bombed by the U.S. and so rather than reducing uh, saying we're fighting them there so we won't have to fight them here as in 9-11 fighting them there uh, increases the chance in fact uh, there's a perfect example of that the the guy who uh, has admitted now proudly that he was trying to kill civilians uh, innocent people and kill people in Times Square and just admitted that proudly in court. He said, precisely because he does not happen to be an Afghan, he's a Pakistani whose country is uh, subject to our drone attacks, which are very low in, well, there's zero in American casualties, and not at all zero, they're very heavy on civilian casualties. He says, so long as there are drone attacks in my country, so long as you're occupying Muslim countries, and so long as uh, you are supporting Israel in its occupation, of the West Bank, he mentioned all, the, he touched all those bases. And it's the reason why he not only uh, did this, but is proud of having done it and assures us there will be others like him. And I think that's a, that's a pretty good prediction. Okay. So uh, because we're fighting them there, because we're occupying their land, we do subject, we're subject to some risk here at home for the first time.
0: I I just have one last question for you, uh, and a brief statement. I believe at some point, Karzai will look at his own future and realize that he and the warlords, um, the former Northern Alliance, are going to have to make peace with the Taliban and create a treaty where they all coexist with us as much as possible out of that equation, because a lot of the Taliban say that when America leaves, then they will talk and they'll put down their arms. As you said, they're not al-Qaeda, and yet we've tried to make it seem in the media, especially the neocons, as if they're one and the same. But that's just a little side comment. The most important question right now is what hasn't happened, and therefore it's only theoretical. And that is the potential of Israel striking Iran uh, and we backing Israel and the consequences to that, and I'm sure they have all their plans drawn up, even though they may be you know, changing them on a regular basis, but Israel does not have any qualms about uh, preemptive strikes, and we would be forced then to support Israel without realizing all the ramifications that could come from that, and could you go through at least, I realize it's purely speculation, but if you could just give us your uh, learned view of what is the likely outcome to oil, the fact that Iran is two and a half times the size of Iraq and has over 1.1 million uh, Hezbollah and other soldiers trained, they're a different breed, it would be a different type of battle, and they would have the capacity to have a lot of interference in the way that oil is distributed. and could affect us on a lot of levels that I don't think the average American is even aware of. Could you go through that scenario, please?
1: Well, I think you've made the case very, very thoroughly. There's much for me that I need to add to it. I'm not a Middle East expert. I don't know whether you are, but I don't think that you have to be an expert to foresee those consequences of of an Israeli U.S., an Israeli attack supported or tolerated and aided really by the U.S. Uh, on the Middle East. It goes back to what I said earlier. Um, it would have the effect of uh, the U.S. having one friend in the Middle East and being hated by everyone else, That one friend being Israel. I think that Israel some of the people in Israel feel, well, we could live with that, you know, for us to be two together and uh, against everybody else. It wouldn't be good for the U.S. It wouldn't be good or our oil supplies, or anything else. The, uh, uh, the the there's hardly another country in the Middle East that could afford to be seen to be allied to the United States at that point, seen in the eyes of its own people. And, and a number of them might fall if they were already seen to be that close. And the others would jump away pretty fast. So, in terms of collaboration, cooperation with any of those countries in fighting. Uh, Al Qaeda, which has certainly identified itself as a as a thoroughgoing eternal enemy of the United States, the chance that they will gain great influence there uh, in that area is very great. We could hardly do anything else. I think there was nothing else we could do that would satisfy Osama bin Laden, assuming that he's still alive. That would be in his old age, uh, in his last years, his, his crowning triumph. Uh, having gotten us to attack Iraq, that was wonderful for recruiting and keeping his uh, organization alive and, uh, and growing. And I'd say uh, even better than that would be a U.S. attack on Iran. And uh, uh, in both cases, by the way, uh, fighting countries that as Shia, mainly Shia, in, almost, uh, in both cases a majority religion, Osama's and his organization being Sunni, uh, and these being two states where al-Qaeda had no foothold, for largely for that reason, Iran and Iraq. So we would have taken care of his two main national enemies for him and uh, made ourselves hated throughout the region uh, in the process. So we couldn't do anything more to strengthen al-Qaeda than to, uh, to attack Iran. I do think this is a real possibility, even under uh, Obama, because uh, I'm sure, I feel pretty sure that Obama does not want this to happen. The question is, can he really keep it from happening? In theory, we should have a great deal of leverage over Israel since our military aid and other aid is is critical to their economy. In practice, no president has, uh, that's like a third wire. No No president has come close to being able to use that lever because the, the lobbying um, effort against that in this country makes it too dangerous for him politically. So he doesn't have leverage against his supposedly weaker partner. So if, if Israel chose to do that, and let's say even fly through Iraqi airspace, which we control, uh, to do it, could uh, would uh, Obama or any president give the order to shoot those planes down, Israeli planes down? Not a chance. So they could do that. And the question is, you know, do you, uh, <laughs> what do you do about it? Do you need to stand aside? Well, actually, I think that attack by Israel, which couldn't really aim at a, at a very prolonged uh, destruction of the distributed Iranian nuclear uh, energy complex, which is all over the place and a lot of it is underground, the Israelis can only do so much to that. They can only set back their energy program Uh, which probably is aimed at a dual capability, at having an ability to go for nuclear weapons eventually. They could only set it back very temporarily. I think their major aim would be to evoke an actual or a threatened Iranian response against Israel. And to protect Israel from that, the U.S. could absolutely predictably would have to go in with all four feet... (laughs) arms and legs, whatever, against Iran to protect Israel from that. So it would be a thoroughgoing U.S. attack in response to any Iranian response to the Israeli attack or any threatened Iranian response. And while we're doing that, we would go against their nuclear installations very thoroughly. And the worst case, which is not at all highly unlikely, it's, it's unlikely, I would say, but not highly unlikely, would be that uh, in the course of absolutely destroying Iranian uh, military capability and possibly uh, their economy as well, um, that these underground sites would be destroyed by the U.S. in the only way they can be thoroughly and uh, uh, dependably destroyed, and that is by Below the earth penetrating small u.s. nuclear weapons Now, uh, that may seem to be just an extremist thought but in fact uh at a time when we've seen now for a couple of years uh every presidential candidate in the last election major candidate putting aside now the uh the same candidates like uh Kfinich and ron paul and uh, even Richardson, on this point, who denounced it. But all the major candidates in both parties joined President Bush, George W. Bush, in saying all options are on the table with Iran, and uh, referring to the exchange that Bush had with the reporter when the reporter asked him, does that include nuclear attack? And he repeated very emphatically, I said, all options are on the table. These are nuclear threats, essentially, by uh, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. Well, Obama has continued that uh, that threat. All options are on the table, and it's, it's a very clear nuclear threat. And uh, does that mean he's anxious to do that? Or No, I'm sure he's extremely reluctant to see that threat carried out. But does that mean it's impossible that that will happen? No, I don't think so. So the escalation actually could go that point even if that's not the most likely outcome mm-hmm. short of that though is a, a devastating u.s attack which uh let's say greatly endangers well the world economy in general could lead to uh, uh iranian efforts which we would try to block and might succeed or might not efforts to block the uh straits uh, of hormones yeah, streets of warm and to stop the flow of oil from the Middle East which would have a devastating effect oh on gosh. the world economy.
0: I just hope that wiser minds prevail. I want to thank you very much for all the good work you've done for the anti-war movements over the years and uh, uh, and all the good uh, information hopefully people will also also watch this documentary on your life. Uh, it was our pleasure having you with us today.
1: okay thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: This is a uh, commentary from Paul Craig Roberts. Uh, Paul Craig Roberts was um, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in the Reagan administration. And uh, he was also with the Hoover Institute, Stanford University. And he was former editor and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And here's what he has to say. Our petulant president's ego can't handle a general letting off steam, neither can any of the spoiled children who comprise our government in D.C., the capital of the superpower. Generals have to fight wars at civilian start, either from the incompetence of their diplomacy or the arrogance of their hubris. Generals have to get young troops killed because of the stupidity or ambition of corruption of civilian government officials. All McChrystal did was let off steam, a real president would have realized that and let it go. Don't get me wrong. McChrystal is a militarist, and I am pleased to see him gone. However, McChrystal didn't restart America's aggression against Afghanistan. The Obama did. President-elect Obama... um, People elected Obama because they were tired of Bush's war based on lies. So Obama gave us a new war in Pakistan and reignited the Afghan war. No one knows what these wars are about or why the bankrupt U.S. government is wasting vast sums of money, which is it has to borrow from foreigners in order to murder the citizenry in two countries that have never done anything to us. Just as Bush, Cheney and their criminal neocon government deceived the world that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that threatened People everywhere, Obama has conflated the Taliban with Al Qaeda. Obama has sold the tale to countries that unless the U.S. determines how Afghanistan is ruled and by whom, then we are in danger of being exterminated by Al Qaeda Taliban terrorists. The most telling aspect of the McChrystal Obama um, effort is that it has caused no one in the U.S. government or media to ask why the U.S. is still killing women and children in Afghanistan after nine years. The U.S. government is prepared for everyone. Accept itself to be tried at the war crimes uh, trial tribunal. Fred Brantman, writing in Alternet, reminds us that five million Iraqis were killed, maimed, tortured, or displaced by an American invasion based on lies told by the highest officials in the American government. Yet no one has been held accountable. But General McChrystal is held accountable for letting off steam. Once the Roman Senate... The legislative branch collapsed, the Caesars, the executive branch became the captives of the military. Now with General Petraeus once again moved to the fore as as McChrystal's replacement in Afghanistan, we have the Obama uh, elevating Petraeus to the Republican presidential nomination in the next election. Thus has Obama replaced himself with a man who will unify the military and executive branch. Associated press writer Jennifer Lovin and Alan Gergan write about the quote admired and tightly disciplined General David Petraeus, the architect of the war Iraq turnaround, who once again uh, is going to take on hands on leadership. Petraeus is an evolved former general. He won't uh, he won in Iraq by paying protection money to the Sunnis who were effectively resisting US occupation. Petraeus figured out that it was Far cheaper, more efficient to put the Sunnis on the U.S. military payroll and to pay them to stop fighting, which is how the war between the Sunnis and the Americans ended. To keep the Americans out of the ongoing large-scale sectarian violence that continues to slaughter Iraqis, the U.S. military was confined to remote bases. If history is a guide, the Afghans will also accept Petraeus' protection money, and Petraeus has just enough time to buy the Afghan war before the next presidential election. The Afghans will, of course, take the money and wait us out, just as the Iraqis are doing. All this drama is playing out despite the continuing lack of any valid reason for the American invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. The Washington idiots, trying to dictate how Iraq and Afghanistan are governed, are destroying constitutional government in the United States. In our hubris to determine how Iraq and Afghanistan are ruled, we are losing our own government. End quote. I'm Gary Knoll. I look forward to sharing more on Sunday evening at 8 o'clock, and I want to thank you for taking your time. Stay tuned for Jim Turner, up next here on the Progressive Radio Network. Have a nice day, everyone.